Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Welcome to this special Floating in Darkness episode of the Orbital Perspective podcast. In this episode, we'll be making a deep dive into one of the key messages contained in my new book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution. 
The book describes how my experience as a combat fighter pilot and as an astronaut has illuminated a path towards understanding the meaning of life and our place in the universe. I know that's a pretty tall order, but uh, <laughs> I'll leave it up to you guys to figure out if uh, I made a dent in that mystery. But this episode was originally aired live as part of my five-part Floating in Darkness live stream event series. If you haven't registered for this free series, you can do so at floatingindarkness.com. And as a special gift for tuning into this episode, if you use the coupon code FUTURE on the pre-order tab of floatingindarkness.com, you will get 25% off the retail price of the hardback book and a free ebook download coupon. Thank you so much for being aboard for this journey of adventure. And now, it's on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode, the third episode of the Floating in Darkness live stream series. As you heard in that video, uh, I think the thing that ch changed me from going into space is my definition of the word home, what I think of when I hear that word home. And that's what this episode is all about. It's all about the power of broadening our definition of the word home and uh, whether or not that... Uh, that broadening of the de definition requires us uh, to abandon anything that we thought of in the past as home. And so we're going to get into all of that. Uh, I am so, so glad that you're along uh, on this journey with us. Um, this is all leading up to the launch of Floating in Darkness, the book um, that I wrote that's coming out uh, in, in a matter of weeks. Uh, and there are key messages in that book that I want to get into the world. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm doing this live stream event. Uh, we're at a critical point in human history right now. We're, there's two there's two paths before us, uh, and we want want to make sure that we get on the right path. and And the messages that are contained within Floating in Darkness, I think, are are intended to nudge us. Uh, in the right direction. And for everybody that's uh, tuning in, like I said, it'll be available uh, in a couple of weeks. But uh, as, a, as a token of thanks for, for being along on the journey so far, I want to offer everybody uh, this opportunity. Uh, you can pre-order the book right now and get a 25% discount uh, using the promo code FUTURE. And so um, that's at floatingindarkness.com. And so I, I want to start off this episode by playing a video. And the video is a, an excerpt. It's a narration of an excerpt from the book. And, and it really talks to uh, this word home and, and what this word home means. To set up the video, um, it's a story about after I returned to Earth. So when our six-month mission was up, my two Russian crewmates and I climbed into our, our spacesuits. We, we crawled through the hatch into our Soyuz spacecraft, closed the hatch, we undocked from the space station. We did a couple of laps around the planet. And as we crossed the south tip of South America, we fishtailed our spacecraft around to point the engines in the direction of, of travel. And at the precise time, we fired the engines, which slowed us down. It made us descend into the uh, upper atmosphere. We had this fiery, violent ride through the atmosphere at five miles a second. The parachutes opened. They threw us all over the place. Eventually, we smashed into the ground. Uh, and after we smashed into the ground, this is where the video picks up.
I feel so heavy. It's as if every part of me is immersed in a very sticky glue. If I try to raise my arm, I have to fight against this glue that is pulling my arm toward Earth. Although I know I'll again get used to living within its gravitational pull, it disheartens me that this is probably my lot for the rest of my life. I will probably be tethered to the planet for the rest of my days. I've only been back on Earth a few minutes, and I already miss the weightless freedom of life in space. With my face pinned against our spacecraft's starboard window, which is now pointed at the ground, I see what appears to be a beautiful painting visible within its metal frame. The background of the painting is formed by alternating waves of tan and brown soil, illuminated by reflective sunlight seeping in from under the hull of our toppled craft. Three distinct objects that appear to be arranged in a purposeful formation make up the rest of this masterpiece. A rock, a flower, and a blade of grass. Six months ago, I would have described the rock as dull, just your average rock. But now it proclaims a uniqueness and a time-worn majesty. It appears stable, solid, and firm. It seems fundamental and strong. Six months ago, I'm sure I would not even have taken the time to describe the blade of grass. It would have been just another one of the countless miracles that I would have taken for granted. Looking at it now, I see life. I see evidence of an ancient contract, a transfer of energy from our star to this precious living creature to us. The focal point of the painting, though, is a white and yellow flower. Somehow, this delicate creature survived the assault of our landing jets and toppled spacecraft to welcome us. The six white petals of the flower are all reaching up toward us like fingers of a small hand. Its palm is holding the bright yellow center part of the flower. For a brief period back in eighth grade biology class, I probably knew what the center part of the flower was called. But at the moment, the name is beyond my reach. Whatever it's called, it looks like a jewel. It looks like the flower is reaching up to present us with its priceless welcome home present. I just hang here for a while, taking in this simple, beautiful scene. As I do, the same emotional thought washes over me again and again. I am home. Not long afterward, the significance of that thought dawns on me. I'm home, but I'm in Kazakhstan. In this moment, my home isn't just Houston where my family is waiting for me to return. My home is Earth. As I lie here against the starboard side of our spacecraft, I let that thought sink in. Home. What does that word really mean? Has my definition of home changed into something new? Or has it retained the meaning it had before I launched and has simply broadened? All the former manifestations of the word home flash through my mind in rapid succession. Family, Yonkers, Roosevelt High School, U.S. Air Force, New York, Church, America. I think of all the squadrons I belong to and all the houses I've lived in. These are places and things that I identified with home. Places and things to defend and protect. If I now define home as Earth, do I have to abandon all those places and things that I once thought of as home? The answer comes immediately and forcefully. Of course not. Broadening my definition of home does not come with a requirement to abandon where I came from, my national, religious, or cultural affiliations. 
It simply means seeing those things in the context of the bigger picture. In my first few minutes back on Earth, I realized that they are two sides of our dolly-zoomed coin. The definition of home has profound implications for how we problem-solve, treat our planet, and treat each other. If we could find a way to see the things that we've identified with in the context of the bigger picture, that is, in the context of our planetary community, this would provide a true foundation to solve the world's problems and its challenges. Well, welcome home, everyone. Like I said up front, this episode is all about home. What does that word mean? What is the definition of that word home? And what are the implications of that definition? And so I want to introduce our special guest. Uh, our special guest, Guy Reed, is someone who I have, for the last 10 years, traveled all around the world with, um, basically defining the definition of that word home. Uh, and he has a very unique uh, insight and perspective into that. And so with that, let me introduce you all to Guy Reed. Guy Reed is a filmmaker, writer, and founder of Planetary Collective and the Constellation Foundation. He has spent the past decade creating films that highlight the work of astronauts, scientists, futurists, and thinkers, exploring stories of who we are as a species and how we fit into our world. Under the Planetary Collective banner, Guy writes and directs films such as the award-winning Overview, which has over 8.5 million views on Vimeo, and Planetary, which was an official selection at South by Southwest and over 30 international film festivals. Guy's films delve into the understanding of our interconnectedness with each other, our biosphere, and the Earth itself. With Constellation, he is a co-founder and executive director of a U.S.-based nonprofit coalition of international astronauts that uses film and digital media to tell astronauts stories of living and working in space and inspires people with messages to take action towards social and ecological good. Guy holds a master's degree in leadership and sustainable development from the Forum for the Future in London and a bachelor's in religion and anthropology at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Guy's academic background helps him parse the technical and scientific narratives of sustainability, biodiversity loss, and climate change into stories, visuals, and language that can be communicated to a wide audience. Hey, Guy. Hey, hey, Ron. How you doing? Thanks for thanks for jumping on. I, I really appreciate it. No, no, it's an honor. It's an honor. You're, you're easy to spot. I think I, I imagine that if you were floating in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere, you'd be pretty, uh, pretty uh, easy to rescue. Yeah, I call this my mountain rescue hat because well, move to the mountains, and if, if look, if there's a snowstorm, they know where I am. No, I like it. I like it. Um, <laughs> so. Thanks for jumping on to talk about home and the, and the significance of, of that meaning. Like I, like I said before the, the, the video, uh, you and I have traveled for the last decade all around the world uh, telling the story of our home world, our home planet, Earth. Uh, and it's been, a, it's been an incredible journey and one that I'm, I'm glad to have been on with you. Me too. And, you know, it was, it was so cool listening to your words um and floating in darkness and the way that you put it and it's 
you know, I've heard it so many different times, you know, when we've talked about it on stage or when we've talked about it with each other, but there's something, the way that it landed this time, it kind of, it just struck me this, this idea of, uh, this idea of it being embodied, you know, it's yeah. not, you know, it, it, there's this little intellectual idea of home, right. Of, you know, the, the, the sort of, um, the narrative of who I am and where I live and where I'm from. But I think you, in a way you're sort of, I always think of it like a, you're a time traveler because <laughs> the future of humanity, the future of our species, if we want to survive and thrive in the way that we have done for the last 200, 300,000 years, we have to extend that boundary in a, in a way that's not simply cognitive or intellectual, but in a way that's embodied, in a way that that is um, a lived experiential idea of home. And that story about the flower and the rock and the blade of grass, it just, it, you know, it's such an intimate moment and the way that you shared it, 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 it strikes me that everyone, to some degree, everyone needs that same intimate moment, obviously without going to space. Yeah. where we become not simply, you know, not simply on the planet, which I think is an intellectual idea. It's a, it's a cognitive, it's in your head. You know, I'm on the planet. I kind of have to think about it. To rather being, to being planetary, to being of the planet. And yeah. I would think that that's the big jump, being right. going from on to of. And like every, yeah. you know, the way that, you talk about in floating in darkness. It's like that's. I feel like that is you perfectly embody that um, in this chapter and in the whole piece itself. Thanks, thanks. And and in uh, episode five of this floating in darkness series, we are going to dive really, really deep into what you just said. Uh, the difference between being on the planet and of the planet, uh, or the difference between being in the universe and of the universe. And so that's going to be. That's going to be the topic of episode five, but you are you're a master storyteller, and and um, you know I've learned a lot from you over the years, uh, particularly how we we can't just speak to to the, our intellect, right? Can't you can't just speak to the head, right? You have to speak to the heart as well, and part of part of that desire to be a storyteller, to tell this story in a way that reaches people on a deep deep level was to weave that into floating in darkness and the story itself is uh, an allegory uh you know i use my the i use the autobiographical narrative of my own life and key events that happened in my life as an allegory for the evolution of society and one of the things that that you just touched on is really important and as we as you grow right as as a as a child grows into an adult um we have a continuously expanding tribe and normally a, your tribe is is what you define uh, the people that that you share what you define as your home right so initially your tribe is is your mom and your dad or your or your siblings who 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 um you know share a, an actual house with you um but as children grow and they become teenagers and become adults their tribe, if you will, rapidly expands to uh, to encompass things besides just your immediate household. And we as humanity are kind of in the teenage years right now. And it's long past time 
that we start to broaden our definition of home and our definition of our tribe uh, and broaden it in a big way, broaden it in a way that encompasses the whole, the whole planet. Because one of the things that I talk about extensively throughout um, Floating in Darkness is tribalism, is, is um, you know, we, we started out as, you know, hunter-gatherers and bands of 20 or 30, and eventually city-states developed and, you know, eventually led to the modern world, which is represented by the two-dimensional colorful map that hangs in classrooms around the world. Uh, and that's not the reality of, of the world that we live in. So it's long past time that we cross the threshold into adulthood as a species and realize that our our identity, our tribe, if you will, extends beyond, you know, our 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 religion, our culture, our ethnicity, or our nationality. Uh, that we are in fact uh, Earthlings, which may, means that our tribe even extends beyond the species known as humans. Mm. It encompasses the entire living ecosystem of Earth, and I and I know that that you you deeply. Uh, resonate with, with that from all the conversations that we've had over the years. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's put very well, and and it's interesting, you know, when you hear this message, like this message was being said, you know, fifty years ago, uh, on, on where I am here in the West Coast, you know, the countercultural movement was 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 saying this message as the Apollo mission was happening, and I feel like. Um, it, it's some the good news is I feel like this idea, which was once a really niche and um, kind of crazy idea, like people thought they were crazy. Like some of uh, some of the astronauts actually that I was fortunate enough to interview, um, you know, Edgar Mitchell on Apollo 14, when he came back, he had this experience, which I think it's interesting because it parallels a lot of your experiences. Um, and he was the first astronaut that I read about when I was 15 that really inspired me um, on this journey. He, you know, people thought he'd gone crazy. He was talking about being interconnected with the planet. He was talking about feeling at home with the universe. He, he had this experience where he saw himself as part of this evolutionary continuum of life and the cosmos. And back then in, you know, the late 60s, well, he came back in 71. People were like, Edgar's lost his mind because that worldview was something that was, um, you know, it was with the hippies on the West Coast, or it was with a very small group of scientists. And the nice thing about our world that we live in today is we can say that and everyone sort of says, yeah, that makes sense. And it's almost become a cliche, but when you say it as someone that's actually, is one of the, you know, 500 people that have actually physically been removed from the planet, and you look back and you see the planet and you say, that's my home. Or you or you land like you did in in in, in um with the Soyuz, and you're like, I'm home, but you're in Kazakhstan. I love telling that story. So you're in Kazakhstan. Yeah. And that there's something about that which is it's there's no in there's no mediation. You yeah. didn't sit there and go, I'm home. Oh, I'm home. You know, it's like I'm home, but period. Yeah. Full stop. Did you just try and say Kazakhstan with a New York accent? Did you just try and do that? I don't think so. Did I? <laughs> New York, it's the years of living in New York that's rubbed off. Yeah. <laughs> I should have said Kazakhstan. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, yeah, there's something about this idea of the unmediated, the the reflexive. It's like it just becomes and I think I think just to speak to your point about tribalism, that that speaks to this idea of of uh, being human to human. 
you know, and I, I sort of see this as a horizontal relationship, right? Like so many of our um, relationships are built out of vertical relationships, you know, which, which are which are which are judgmental relationships, um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but they always need to be secondary. Right. And our primary relationship, and I think this is what comes with this idea of understanding ourselves as a singular species and the planet as our as our true home. What comes with that? You know, it's, it's almost like a practical thing. It's like your primary relationship is human to human, and then there can be some distinction. Yeah. But if I, I feel like that's the hallmark of this embodiment of home, uh, the planet is home, and and, and humans as 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 our as our kin, yeah. as our kin group, and then even larger, right? It's like you can also just not just do human to human, but you can do you know human to non-human. But it's this horizontal relationship at the beginning. And then, you know, the distinction. You know, I, I think one of the, the greatest modern prophets, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, you know, reached the pinnacle back in the 60s, and that's Dr. Martin Luther King. And when he gave that prophetic sermon uh, on Christmas Eve, 1967, when he talked about the interrelated structure of all reality, right? And so... I, that's that that speech and the and the significance of that speech in relation to what happened a year later when Apollo 8 came up from behind the far side of the moon and took the famous photograph of Earthrise and that that gave meaning to to that to what Dr. it was the visual to what Dr. King uh, talked about a, a year prior, but it. it it goes back to everything that you're saying about Edgar Mitchell and the, and the hippie culture of the sixties and all this stuff, this idea of an underlying unity an implicit wholeness, or as Dr. King put it, the interrelated structure of all reality, how, how there isn't you and I as separate, you know, individuals operating in a vacuum that there's a continuum and this continuum, um, you know, what happens uh, affects everything else. Everything, every little thing that happens affects everything else. And we all realize that. And it, and that has become a cliche. Um, and, you know, we're all, you know, slogans like we're all in this together and all that kind of stuff, you know, just because they're cliches doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, it really is true. And it's, and it's undeniable when you see the planet from space. Um, and I know that you've spent your whole career telling that story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it becomes a cliche because it's said in cosmetic terms. It's said right. in it's it's been appropriated, right? The, these ideas have been appropriated um, for disingenuous reasons, you know, because it sounds good. But like when people really embody it, like King, I mean, Dr. King's an interesting one because going back to that horizontal relationship and the human to human, it's like you know, King was was especially you know towards the end of of his life you know he embodied this idea of solidarity right solidarity with all oppressed people this he the 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 interrelated structure of reality becomes a lived experience in which our moral and our um our way of being with other human with other humans um you know, it becomes reflexive that that if someone is oppressed, they we need to do something about it. We we is this internationalist human family that you know, and and this is something um, which you know maybe not a lot of people know because not you know because people see you as an astronaut or see you you know in this removed setting often. But you know, my experience with you when we've been traveling 
is this you embody that experience of of the of the horizontal human to human and like no matter where we are if we're in bangkok or if we're in colombia or if we've you know somewhere where there's a there's there's you know kofi annan's at one end of the room and there's the there's the waiter at the other end or the the, the service staff you for me embody that concept of the human to human and regardless and 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 having this idea that we really are um or we all as human beings we all have this inherent value and you know our current systems at the moment um they they fail i think to capture this idea um and we talk about all sorts of things but we fail to i, I often think that the narratives that were perpetuated at the moment fail to capture the global south as well right you know who who've been the victim of um an oppressive imperial culture from the from the global north and we're in, and so for me you know thinking about the work that you've done in rwanda thinking about um the idea of uh honoring and uh understanding this like huge uh, uh diversity within the ethnosphere of different cultures um that's something that for me you when you say this idea it's not cosmetic it's it's a lived real experience that you know is something which you know that that's the key for us to do this because you know if we want any solutions in solving the situation that we've designed our way into um we need to think about humanity as a whole and not just the global north we need to really think about um you know the majority of human beings yeah, I think not only because we have a responsibility, but I think a lot of those solutions are going to come from there. And yeah. you know, I, I I often think about the two billion, or maybe I think it's up to three billion people now that don't have access to the internet right now. And it's more. It's it's. I think last time I heard, five billion people. Yeah, the number's going up. Whatever the number is, it's going up. Right. Uh, because population is going up, and and the population is dispro disproportionately going up in impoverished areas of the world. But whatever that number is, let's say it's 4 billion people, right. not only would those people benefit from having access to the internet, whether it's you know the information, sometimes life-saving life information that the internet could provide, uh, education, you know, the list goes on and on, they could, they could create businesses, uh, but also that's, that's 4 billion creative problem-solving minds that are not, uh, not connected to the global conversation. And I believe that when we connect everyone to the global conversation through connection with the internet, we're going to find solutions we never dreamed of coming from places we never heard of. And we have to do that in a way that mitigates some of the downside because, you know, we've unleashed quite, quite a, uh, a monster here with the internet and there's a lot of problems with it. And, um, you know, as, as any technology, it could be used for good or it could be used for not so good. And but what basically what we're doing is we've established a neural network uh, for the planet that we could effortlessly, seamlessly cooperate and collaborate with people all around the world, regardless of their geographic location, political identity, uh, ethnic, uh, religious identity. We we're basically you know creating this giant super organism, organism brain of of planet Earth and. Um, this idea that we're all interconnected is, uh, you know, the technology is catching up with that truth, uh, basically. Yeah, and it's like you've got the interconnection of communications technologies, right? 
in the form of what we call the internet. But you also have um, pretty close on the horizon, the internet of energy. And when we have decentralized renewables that are in a giant, you know, uh, these gigantic um, networks and, and then logistics, when you throw that in, right? Rifkin, Jeremy Rifkin has this idea of the third industrial revolution of being the integration between, you know, uh, comms, energy production, um, and logistics. And we've yet to do that with this larger interconnected yeah. and global system. So, I mean, the implications of that is to create, you know, zero margin, like a zero marginal cost society where people are in some respects liberated um, uh, by, you know, having uh, baseline technologies that allow people to engage in whatever they want to engage in. And when you talk about that connecting, say, 10 billion humans in 2050, you, like you said, I, I think it's such a good point. It's like you unlock this human potential that is so exciting because, um, I mean, I, I, there was something I heard actually recently. I, I'm not exactly sure of the numbers, so it's by memory, but it's something like this. There was a professor at Stanford, um, in, uh, he's a mathematics professor, and he uh, put an online course on, right? You know, like a MOOC, yeah. you know, massive online courses. And, you know, apparently like his, you know, math department is meant to be like one of the best in the world at Stanford, et cetera. His star pupil placed 52nd um, in this test that they did once he did the online course, meaning there's 51 people out there. <laughs> that are better than the star pupil at the star department. And oh, see, yeah. it just, it, and, and you know, these guys popping up in, you know, in Burkina Faso and uh, Bangladesh and all, and you know, places that traditionally don't have access um, to these, you know, large, very expensive institutions like Stanford. And it's like, you know, I feel like we're at the tip of the iceberg there. It's like once you create that kind of connectivity, genuine connectivity that liberates people from, you know, energy poverty, uh, uh, food poverty, uh, you know, information poverty, all these different things. It's like suddenly like humans become, you know, we become something very different. And, and what's interesting is you talk about population growth, 90% of the world's population in 2100 is gonna be from the global south. Yeah. It's gonna look like a very different world. And so, you know, I so just to come back to the sort of practicalities of identifying as a single human species and the planets are home, I think the real marker there is when people start to think about the global south in a meaningful fashion, right? Right, as opposed to it being just some place we throw aid or whatever the narrative is. Right. Well, what we need to what we need to do is is not think, oh, those poor people over there. We need to think of them as us. There is no them, right? And one of the things, you know, like I said, one of the main themes of floating in darkness is this idea of an evolving tribe, right? Of tribalism. But most of, the, if not all, of the negative aspects of tribalism come from a scarcity mindset that we right. have the, an equation of limited resources and we have to fight the other tribe to make sure that we have uh, the best resources. Uh, and so when, when we're starting to, to enter in the possibility of abundance where all of our needs are met because of the technological advancements like the things that, that you've talked about, that changes the equation and it makes it um, somewhat more plausible that we could have a tribe of earthlings and, and operate together as, as a, 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 single, uh, a, a single unit, if you will. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I think is really important is to understand 
the underlying unity that exists, the implicit wholeness, as as we've yeah. talked about in the past, because because that when you understand that, it makes everything real. It makes everything, you know, move from the category of cliche and kumbaya and you know hippie stuff into reality, which you know we have some real problems and challenges facing our planet. So some, and, and I shouldn't say facing our planet, facing our species, and these are life or death challenges and the only way that we're going to solve them is by dealing with the real problems and challenges in the context of the real world with all its interconnected, uh, interdependent complexity. Uh, it's not binary. You know, we, 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 we tend through our news cycles and our social media feeds and everything to put things in black or white or yes or no or good or bad. And it's, it's not, the world is not that simple. And so we need to, we need to start looking at that. So maybe, maybe let's shift the conversation just a little bit to talk about that underlying implicit wholeness yeah i mean i think i think it comes back to sort of scientific literacy as well where it's kind of a strange thing isn't it that most people are unaware of the planet as a um like the the, the totality of the planet as uh we, we we think of it as particulars we think of the planet as being a bunch of objects that are all put together, right? And and that and they're all on the planet, right? There's like humans, and there's you know there's there's uh, you know mammals, and and it's all kind of like stuck together. It's, we think of it in the particular, but when we think about it in the in the whole, right? And and the you know the the sciences of ecology, right? You know, eco logos, eco meaning home, logos meaning knowledge, right? It's knowledge of home. That ecological science is looking at. Um, the 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 larger order of things in their totality and so you know i sort of see you know your, your experience and then some of the astronauts experience that i've um documented over the years as this you know you, you have to tell me if i'm right or wrong about this but this idea that when when you when you essentially see the planet from that vantage point but not in a sort of simple visual sense but in this sense of uh embodied uh, connectivity with it, right, in whatever form that means, that it feels like there's um, some sort of, uh, uh, almost like some sort of understanding of that wholeness, right? Like the, the it becomes something which, um, it's almost like you're interacting with a field, right? That's something that's almost has its own presence. You know, I, I sort of think about this, it's a strange thing when you think about astronauts going to space and they almost talk about the presence of the planet, like it's present, like it's not just a thing or a rock or whatever we've been sort of taught, you know, it, it is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Did, did it really feel like a presence? Like a Yes. And the presence is life. When you look at the planet from space, the presence that you're feeling is life, is, is this teeming biosphere, uh, uh, you know, with all the multivaried species of life and, you know, animal and plant and everything else. And uh, it, it, it does appear to be a whole. And not only have we ignored this implicit wholeness, you know, this, the, the earth as a living system, a whole living system of which we are a part of, but we've not only taking that, we've not only fragmented that into little pieces, but we've got the fragmentations completely out of priority. Like right now, the number one priority is the global economy. Uh, 
right. followed by society, followed right. by the planet. Right. right, the planet and all the life support system, the very life support systems of our planet are the holy are seen by our political structure, our business structure, everything else as the wholly owned subsidiary of the global economy. Right, and we know the reality of the situation is exactly the opposite, that our society is de completely dependent uh, and embedded in the planet, in the biosphere of the planet, and the society is what creates and uh, and the economy is dependent on society. So we have completely flipped upside down the priorities. First of all, they shouldn't be fragmented in the first place, but if they are fragmented, at least put them in the right order. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, this term embedded, right, to, to be embedded, to be nested, to be within, to be of, right? It's like once we... Once we see it um, with that clarity, and it's interesting because I feel like that clarity, um, I'm getting an echo. I don't know if that's. I don't, I don't have an echo. Okay, okay, maybe it's just me. Um, but that clarity, it's obviously you've had that clarity in a physical embodied experience of going to space, but I feel like there's almost, you know, there's almost a calling to us all now in the, in the world that we find ourselves to to understand that clarity, that we are, that our, our society that we have created as humans, right, is embedded within this larger community of life. And the, the interesting thing is, is that it goes the other way as well, like, uh, like Claude, who we interviewed um, at ASD, who's the cosmologist, who flew with, you know, Jeff Hoffman, and um, they were the guys that fixed the Hubble. He's a he's an amazing astrophysicist, and he would he like taught the other astronauts to um, stargaze on the shuttle. Like they made these like cardboard things, and they were able, to, <laughs> you know, to adjust the um, light pollution so they could see into the cosmos. He he talks about as Mae Jemison does as well. They, they talk about this idea of like looking the other way, not just look at, at the planet, but looking into the into the galactic plane, and this idea of the galaxy as this other home that we're within and it's like yeah. you know we we sort of think about it like we're the galaxy you know is like over there it's like we're in the galaxy we are yeah, yeah. the activity yeah, yeah. of the galaxy if you just zoom out now you see a spiral galaxy and there's like a little bar on its spiral arm just like you know a little bit of energy going on this is us yeah. we are the galaxy's activity so yeah. it's like you know that's and then it gets really trippy because you think well okay so Traditionally, the way that we think about this is, you know, we're aware and alive, and we we kind of know that we have this immediacy of knowing that. And so, if you zoom out and you see this little bit of the spiral galaxy, and there's a little bit of energy going on, and we know that's aware and alive, it's kind of crazy to think the rest of it's dead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that's just that's just one galaxy. I'm, I'm yeah. yeah. And then that's embedded with it, you know. But there's something about this idea of these like larger nested orders, you know, right, the, right. these implicit orders that have that that we're embedded within. It's not just that we're on the planet; we're of the planet. It's not just that we, you know, that we are the galaxy doing what it's doing in this space. It's like right. the galaxy is running and guying. You know, with <laughs> verbs, you know. Um, so there are think, no nouns, only verbs. That's right. Yeah. And I think if you think of people, you know, other people as being of and part of that process, then right. immediately right. we're all part of that same order. Immediately that false separation yeah. vanishes. Yeah. It, it, because it, it's it, a linguistic one of order and, you know, object yeah. and subject, which comes right. out of, 
you know, a, 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 you know, comes out of, you know, Latin based languages, which tend to be imperial languages as well. Right. So it's like, you know, in other languages like Lakota, you know, one of the, one of my, um, you know, a great mentor on a Teosquin ghost horse talks about talking in Lakota. It's like, it's everything's relational. Right. And so in a weird way, I feel like we, we are this strange, we're at this strange moment because we come from a world of particulars and separation and our language is even based upon that principle. But there's other cultures whose ways of being, especially, you know, we can, we can sort of loosely say indigenous, you know, sort of catch-all term, but, you know, th this understanding of our embeddedness and relationality. And so in a way, you know, we as a global species have to... Um, a what species? Well, I was going to say a global species <laughs> would have to become planetary, right? Yeah. That's what I was going to say. We don't right? live on a globe. Yeah, 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 exactly. We have to go from the abstracted the cognitive, the intellectual, um, like approach of, of, of understanding of cosmology to actually experience it, you know, and I, I get really, I'm really annoying because sometimes I'll sit there with a friend, you know, post, you know, pre pandemic and hopefully post, you know, sit there and watch like the sunrise, you know, where you've got the morning star or the sunset and you're like, what's going on? And they're like, you talk about sunsetting. Yeah. Yeah. But what's really going on? <laughs> And then there's, and then it kind of and you see it, it goes cognitive and like, oh yeah okay yeah we're in fact rolling and the sun's stationary yeah. and there's this planet but then you see something happen that cognitive the intelligent kind of like you know they've thought about their 16 year old science lesson they're suddenly back in the body and they're like wait a minute I'm in the solar system yeah yeah and then you go I'm not in it I'm of it and then you know so so the other the the one of the terms that I I've uh, commandeered uh, and used throughout the book is the term dolly zoom. Right. So what you're describing is a dolly zoom. So every morning I wake up in my bed, but I also wake up on a planet, and and it's and I try as as hard as I can throughout the day to keep that perspective, keep that bigger perspective, um, in 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 my in my consciousness, in my in my awareness, because it is important. It's important to have that that grounded, rooted understanding of the making, you know, of, of, of the totality of what's going on. Because if we lose sight of that, if we lose that perspective, we put ourselves in this teeny tiny little box where we, you know, we can't see beyond the, the, the length of our nose. And um, that's where we, that's where things like us and them get created <laughs> when we're in this box, because those people are in the, this other box. I'm in this box. They're in the other box. There is no box, right? There, so. So that's the thing that we need to realize. Um, and maybe just for folks listening, you know, you, have, I, you and I have talked about this for you know, a decade now. Uh, it's the difference between the word global and planetary. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a really critical distinction uh, in that, you know, global is artificial. Global is our computer networks, our financial networks, uh, as you like to say, abstract lines covering a sphere. Um, but we don't live on a globe. We live on a planet. And when you bring in, when you when you treat things planetary, then what that does is people go in, 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 a, in a, if you're treating something if you're treating an issue as a global issue, then people are numbers on a spreadsheet. They're yeah. they're they're you know <laughs> members of a workforce of a consumer group of, of their vote the voting blocks. They're 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 not people. They're not valued member of the human family. When you treat things from a planetary perspective, not only are people do they maintain in a dolly zoom sense their distinct value as a part uh, as an integral part of the human family but they're also an integral part of the entire biosphere 
that is known as planet Earth. And um, to, to me, that, and I talk about this in the book as well, this arising planetary consciousness, which is a nested system. At its core is social consciousness, where we understand uh, the real meaning of the term one human family, and then the planet, and then uh, cocooning that uh, that social consciousness is is the planetary consciousness, which is uh, that social consciousness embedded within the indivisible biosphere uh, known as Earth. Exactly, it goes from being global is dead, planetary is alive. Exactly, yeah, you know. And that's, we have to, in some respects, we have to reanimate the world. We have to make it living again. You know, the one thing, um, again, you can confirm if this is right, but, you know, after speaking, you know, we've interviewed 38 different astronauts now, and I don't think I know anyone that hasn't said the planet. Everyone said the planet looks alive. I can't think of anyone that's, like, denied that. And I, th I think that's interesting. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, you, you, you talk about like looking back and seeing life, right? That, that's, I, I find that remarkable. Because yeah, I've, I've never said, I've never said that before. I've never, I've never uttered those words before. It just dawned on me when you said there was a presence. I was like, yeah, there is a presence. What is that presence? The presence is life. That's yeah. what the presence is. Yeah. Anusha says that she talks about this idea of, Looking back, and she thought that she would be the life. Looking back, but it was right. like Anusha, for, for, everybody, for everybody. Anusha, I'm sorry. Yeah, Anusha, I'm sorry. Yeah, CEO of the X Prize Foundation. Yeah, and and I, so I think there's something. <clears throat> I I think there's this. I think this process is not just you know it's not just like something we kind of have to do. You know, it, like for some like traditional like idea of development or like some moral imperative to, you know, to help people. It's like we we have to do it for ourselves. Because we live in a we live in a dead world essentially. Our cosmology right now is kind of like a dead world. Yeah. But it, these things have to become living. They have to become presences. They have to become alive. Like our galaxy. I'm amazed at how few people know that we what a galaxy is. Right. Let alone thinking that they themselves are the activity of the galaxy, right? Or, right. or, or, or the idea of the biosphere, the idea of a living planet. So I think there's something in the process of like, we need a sort of literacy, but we also need, um, well, we need people like you who, who are saying, look, I went to space and I felt I, like, like the, the blinkers came off. Yeah. I saw things as they are. Not as the way that I've been conditioned to see things, right. based on tribal, social, cultural, you know, um, but based upon the, this unmediated, multifaceted beauty that like overwashes me, and I, you know, I have to come back to Earth and write a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, why are you sharing? What, here's a good question: Why are you sharing all this stuff? Why did you write the book? Because it's a call to action. I mean, uh, the orbital perspective. My first book was a call to action, and flooding in darkness is a deeper call to action. A call to action to share a perspective of our planet that has profound implications for how we how we treat our planet and how we treat each other. And you know, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. You know, right now, popular culture, it's hard to find a science fiction movie that shows a good future. They're yeah. all dystopic. I mean, yeah. they're all Blade Runner and, you know, all, you know, all of these terrible 
you know, terrible futures that, that are before us. That's what's in our, that's what's in our, the forefront of our thinking right now is that we're on, because that's the path that we're on. We're yeah. on a path that's leading to these dystopic futures. And you you and I have, have talked at length about, we're at this crossroads, this crossroad right now, and we want to steer ourselves to the Star Trek future, not the Blade Runner future, right? And it, I think it all comes back to what we define as home. What is our definition of the word home? What is what do we what do we identify with as home, right? And if it's if it's our corporation, if it's if it's if it's our own little family unit, and you know my job is to make as much money as I possibly can so that my little unit can can be as prosperous as, as it, it possibly can, then that's at the expense of the underlying unity. If if, if there's nothing more there's nothing wrong with with being ambitious and trying to and to better your better your yourself and your and your um, and your in your um, you know to build wealth. There's nothing wrong with with that, as long as you're not you know destroying others or destroying the planet. As long as you're not doing that in a manipulative way, in a destructive way, uh, consciously or unconsciously, because um, we are responsible for the things that that uh, we do, whether we realize that we're doing them or not. So um, so let's just I mean we're we're, we're kind of at the end end of, of the time. I appreciate the time that you've given to this so far, but why don't we bring it home uh, by talking about home and 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 specifically how do we define it properly so that we can overcome these obstacles to to greater unity, to greater cooperation, to greater progress? How do we how do we define home in such a way that we nudge the trajectory of our society off the Blade Runner path towards the Star Trek path? I mean, I think you're example um of what happened to you when you came back um from six months in space that's i feel like that's a microcosm of what we all need to do collectively and the way that we do that is by building community and building civic engagement you know like most people you know we're kind of we sort of think of ourselves or we've been shaped into thinking of ourselves as like consumers and that's like our primary function, it seems, at, you know, the situation we're in now. It's like, you know, we should we should come back to this idea of being citizens. You know, demo, demos kratis means the rule by the people, right? The demos. And, like, we need to think about creating civic engagement and organizing ourselves so that we can protect which is that which is most valuable. And our, our, our planetary life support systems for our species um, and for all the multifaceted, you know, evolutionary brothers and sisters um, from different non-human communities, you know, they, they're with us now. You know, what, what, what we do, you know, we, we talk about this thing, you know, the planet will be fine. Okay, it, it's sort of true, right? But not really as well, because there's so many different life systems now that humans are embedded within. So, you know, there's something about this idea of home, the solidarity and connectivity with all human beings and then non-human uh, 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 beings as well, that has to be rooted in genuine um, action. And that action, I think we need to think about profound civic engagement and, and unlocking, you know, finding technological solutions like we talked about the zero marginal cost in, in, you know, the, I think the global north should build that infrastructure in the global south, one thing, right? So that we can have a planetary citizenry, 
Because once we empower people to be citizens and to have that autonomy, to be able to make real decisions about our collective future, um, then you know we can. That's that gets us to Star Trek. Yeah. Right? If, if if we let things go as they are at the moment, we are going to end up with a plutocracy, a corporate, whatever they call it, when the corporations are in charge, like in Blade Runner, ecological collapse. We're going to be in some big, big, big. You know, no one wants to live in that world. So, I think it comes back to this idea of of being a planetary citizen in that respect yeah. as well. Right. Yeah, and and the stakes have never been higher than right now. And yeah. I just want to go back to something that was in the video. Yeah. Which obviously, is a narration from the book, which is one of the main points of the book, is that broadening our definition of the word home does not come with it a requirement to yeah. forget where we came from, our national, our cultural, our religious sure. uh, identities. It simply means seeing those things in the context of the bigger picture. It doesn't mean that we're any less American or British or or Rwandan or Chinese or whatever. It just means that we're part of a family, a larger family than we presently realize. Um, it hasn't uh, stopped your love of pizza, has it? Being a no, New Yorker. No. It, going to space didn't make, <laughs> in, fact, you, in fact, you miss pizza so much you order pizza in space, if I remember. That's correct. It, it was not delivered. It certainly wasn't delivered within 30 minutes. So, <laughs> but, but <laughs> Guy, thank you so much. That, that hat, no. by the way, I, I, know, I know what it reminds me of now. When, when I was on Nemo 9, uh, living on the bottom of the ocean, there we, go. We, uh, we, we, we had a movie night and we watched Team Aquatic, Bill Murray playing Steve Sisu in, 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 uh, in uh, the Life, Aqu Life, Life Aquatic. And uh, those were red hats, but they look, you could be on no, you no, could be on he has an orange hat in like oh, an orange. Okay, I like orange red. red. This is where the the OG, the OG. No one will ever believe you, Bill Murray. You know yeah. he goes up and eats people's pizza and stuff, and he yeah. says no one will ever believe you. Right. So you Legend. got that. You got that hat from Bill Murray. That's the hat he wore. In, he's the OG. He's the, he's the guy. You know, oh. Bill Murray, Bushwick. You know, here we go. <laughs> oh, guy, thank you so much. Honor, um, one. Looking yeah, forward. Yeah. Looking forward to continuing to tell this story with you around the world because uh, it's such an important story with such uh, important implications. Uh, so th thanks for thanks for being along on this journey. No, thanks to you, Ron. And I love I, like I said, as soon as we as soon as I started reading some of the stuff, you know, like when you start writing it, I, I just I think this is such a fascinating project. And it's so exciting. And I really appreciate you. You know, I know it, it, this is not an easy thing to do, and I really appreciate you sharing these insights because it means uh, I think it means a lot to a lot of people. So thank you, Ron. Well, th thanks, guy. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop you out, and we'll we'll talk to you next time. Okay, cheers. All right, cheers. Well, I really really do appreciate guy taking the time to do that. Um, and uh, speaking of floating in darkness, I want to play uh, this video. White light streams out from behind Earth, 
I am engulfed in colorless radiant light that seems to be emanating out of cold emptiness and traveling through cold nothingness. The light streams over and around me and a hint of peaceful serenity awakens inside me. Beyond my view of the sparkling ISS, a rocky coastline on an unrecognized continent drifts into view. Sunlight bathing newly awakened snow-capped mountains into the glory of a new day. I imagine there are people down there somewhere, just starting their day, who are also witnesses to this exquisite beauty from a different but no less compelling perspective. I wish we could share notes. complex immensity of the ISS against the backdrop of our indescribably beautiful Earth, 240 miles below, thrusts me into a singularity. The entire universe peels away the blanket of danger, the thoughts of upcoming tasks, the feelings of fatigue, the excitement of being in space are all displaced by a singular vision of beauty. The truth that is blatantly apparent from this vantage point is that Every living thing on the planet and the planet itself are inexplicably interconnected and interdependent. What's obvious from this vantage point of physical detachment from Earth is that we are not from Earth. We are of Earth. All of us. Every living creature. Well, thanks uh, to everybody who's stuck through this uh, <laughs> this episode to the end. Uh, as a as a, a gift for for sticking through uh, to the end, I want to remind everybody that we have this uh, promotion. Uh, go to flowingindarkness.com uh, and use the promo code Future, and you get twenty five percent off of uh, of a purchase of that. And I want to also remind everybody that. Uh, April 21st at 10 a.m. Pacific time will be episode four. Uh, it's called Starting Conditions. Transcending the Matrix is key to overcoming our challenges and our conflicts. It's going to be a really exciting episode uh, about the importance of starting conditions. And uh, I guess home is is part of that starting condition of what we define as, as, as home. Um, and it's, uh, it's the foundation point from which uh, we jump off uh, of. And so I think it, it'll be really, it'll build upon uh, what we've talked about uh, in this episode. Uh, thank you all for your comments and questions. Last call for uh, comments, for the live comments and questions. Uh, thanks to everybody. Thanks, Lana. Thanks, uh, Anne, uh, Barbara, Debbie, Michael, Charles, uh, Cheryl, Nina. Uh, thanks to everybody who, who uh, put comments in. Uh, we'll try and get to them uh, afterwards too, if, uh, if we can. Um, and really what this series is about, what the book is about, what our discussion is about, is the power of perspective. Pers perspective changes everything. If you have the proper perspective, uh, then you can see the true reality of a situation. And we've said it over and over again, multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth. Two perspectives allow us to see stereoscopic vision. In stereoscopic vision, the more perspectives we bring to a, to a, to a situation uh, or to a problem or to a challenge, the deeper our understanding of that. And so our, our very diversity is what provides the 
differences of perspective. Um, and I think it's really important to incorporate all those. And our perspectives, however, have to be grounded in truth. They have to be grounded in fact and evidence. And, and we uh, need to incorporate that through every, every means possible. And so uh, I just want to leave everybody with those thoughts and uh, a, a huge thank you to everybody for being along on this journey. It is really important to me that you guys are all along uh, on this journey. And with that, I will say thank you and uh, see you in two weeks. All the best. Cheers. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. <laughs>